Our topic for today has been on an environmental bill of rights and why is federal action on the environment critical to a healthy local economy. I'd like to bring Linda Duncan, our speaker, back up to answer questions. And I'd also like to encourage you to come to the microphone. Please state your name. Uh, ask a question. We're, we'll try to keep it to one question per, per asker. Um, and uh, keep it, try to keep it brief. Oh, the birthday boy gets the first question. That's only fair. Yeah, I normally <laughs> don't uh, get up here if there's a lineup, but uh, since it's my birthday, I guess I can qualify. <laughs> Linda, thanks very much for coming. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the, the last few days there's been talk about David Schindler's study not being scientific enough for the provincial and industries involved in the tar sands. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on that, please. Well, oh, I can repeat the question. Um, he asked, you know, there's been a lot in the media recently about Dr. Schindler's report, and uh, <clears throat> where he, he has reported the results of his second study, field work study, on the impact of uh, the oil sands on water resources in the Athaba upper, lower Athabasca. And um, any work that Dr. Schindler does, I know is going to be high caliber and it's going to be incredibly well done. And to his credit, Dr. Schindler, in this review, has not spoken to any of the results of his work, even though he's known the results now for about a year, until it was fully peer-reviewed and it was published. And uh, that was why he released the report this Monday, is because it was actually being published. And so I feel fully confident, because I've followed the work of Dr. Schindler over all these years. I mean, we know he's essentially a Nobel-caliber-level scientist and has received accolades all around the world. We just have difficulties in this country with people accepting the caliber of scientist he is and acting accordingly. Um, Basically, the, the summary of, of his latest research is he did snow sampling, which nobody has done before, to see uh, what was happening in the area, and then also did water sampling. And this led him to a very interesting discovery where previously people were concerned that potentially the oil sands operations um, were leaking from the, the tar ponds and were causing pollution in the Athabasca River. As a result of this work he's done, it showed definitively that where a lot of the issue may be is in the upgrading of the bitumen in the Fort McMurray area because he found very high levels of toxins in um, the deposition in snow and as well in the river. He also did sampling downriver, upriver, and found definitively much higher levels of, I think, of about 13 um, toxins, specifically in the area where the oil sands activity is occurring. And forecasting forward that as they expand the industry, we've got a very serious problem. What is really, I think, remarkable about his work and so important is along the lines of what I'm strongly recommending and that is that the federal government st finally step up to the plate and assert its responsibility in this area. And we have this long history in Alberta of get rid of the federal government, butt out, it's duplication, we don't need you. 
But we forget constitutionally there's lots of things that only the federal government can do. Only the federal government has jurisdiction over fisheries. That's been a bugbear for the Alberta government for a long time. And they were always pushing that envelope. The federal government can't not give up its constitutional responsibility unless we amend the Constitution. So they have a responsibility protecting our fishery. Um, another one is transboundary pollution. Obviously, Alberta can't take responsibility. They could. But, you know, Saskatchewan or Northwest Territories can't take on Alberta. It's the federal government that needs to take on Alberta if we are, through our activities, um, polluting water or polluting the airshed. So that's another area. The third really important one is First Nations, peoples, lands, and waters. 100% federal responsibility. So all Dr. Schindler is saying is, look, you know, over all these years, we've eroded our federal investment in water management. We used to have, uh, you know, a very famous lauded system of federal water monitoring and management that fed into the provincial systems, and we've let that go. So essentially, he's shown by example. He, sp he spent his own prize money doing a lot of this monitoring across Alberta. He got, you know, <coughs> the Gordon Foundation, which is a very uh, upstanding uh, foundation to help fund it, used good researchers, used good labs, did peer review, and has shown, yes, indeed, we do have a problem up there. At the very minimum, we should be stepping up to the plate and monitoring. So... I know there's been a variety of responses by the government of Alberta thus far. I give full credit to the Premier, um, although we could end up deflecting because I've been through this before. He's saying, well, as quickly as possible, we need to bring together a forum of scientists to take a look at this data. To me, that's what the Minister of Environment should have said. Instead, he tried to insult David Schindler. So what we need is open dialogue on this. What we need is good science. So that's what I'm going to keep pushing for, and I hope that you would be pushing your elected representatives to be standing by that. Yes. My name is Henning Mundell, and my question comes from trying to get from you an interpretation of what another political party is doing, the government. Um, with the... Um, our Prime Minister and his ministers making these pronouncements in international fora like Copenhagen and so on about uh, Canada um, acceding to uh, environmental degradation reduction and uh, research on climate change. It's um, an obvious dissembling. How does our government get away with that in terms of, in theory, uh, trying to get more votes by dissembling? It's a really good question. I wish I had a rational answer. I think the answer is, is that decisions are increasingly not rational. And so Mr. Harper, right, who's the government now, and he's got control of the purse strings, plus his party has a lot of money in their pot, and they are disseminate, disseminating a lot of false information. And I think it's reprehensible. I think as the government, they're obligated to govern. And they're obligated to govern based on facts. And you're going to have a very excellent discussion next week about the long-form census. I mean, the thing that is so astounding is we know this pattern. We know this, whatever organization you're into, certainly we knew this in the environmental community, is what government would often try to do is that they didn't want big public dialogue on an issue. They hold it in the summer, right? And so a lot of critical decisions were made this summer. To their shock and dismay, people were not asleep at the wheel. 
Canadians are very concerned and active involved. And one thing that they rely on is sound facts. So I think they've been completely astounded by hearing from everything from Jewish synagogues to United Church, scientific researchers would be the obvious ones, municipal and provincial governments, right? Because this is increasingly what we're seeing happening. If the federal government pulls out, somebody has to step in. So if we're not going to have sound census information, how do we know whether we need more extended care? How do we, need, how do we know if a particular community in Alberta has the need into the future for hospital services? How do we know if there's enough spots in our universities for our young people to go to? How do we know where we need sewer upgrades? I mean, all of that is from census information. And so the frightening thing is, by getting rid of that information, it allows Mr. Harper, because there's one thing that, that continuously the opposition has been doing, is taking them on with facts. Um, the biggest example to me was the decision <coughs> this summer revealed to the public about the prisons, right? I mean, I have to say that was my favorite. Uh, we need to build more prisons because of unreported crimes. Okay, I don't think Stockwell would be let out of his cage for a while. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And this is what we deal with in Parliament every day, this kind of thinking. It's very hard to have a rational dialogue with somebody who doesn't think that decision-making should be based on facts. And the gun registry, okay, is another one. So we're not going to let you know what the police chief survey said because it's still being translated six months later. <laughs> these, these all add up. And that's why I keep saying again, this was supposed to be the open, transparent, accountable government. Yes. Hi. Um, thanks so much for the important work that you're doing and for making the trip to Lethbridge. And thank you, Cheryl, also <laughs> for all of your work. Um, what you've been talking about is, you know, oh, oh my name is Rena Wass, by the way. Um, we're, it's like knocking ourselves out trying to get the government to um, make some concessions, at least hear us out, and um, trying to push the bill through that you're talking about kind of runs parallel to something that we're doing at a grassroots movement here in Lethbridge. I'm with several groups, one of them Green Sense. We're trying to get the government to open their doors to green renewable energy. Um, and we've had the city of Lethbridge, we, we petitioned them, and they wrote our energy minister, Mel Knight at the time, a letter saying, uh, you put together uh, 250000 for a nuclear study, put the same amount of money in effect for a study on green renewable energy. Well, of course, they got this pat letter back. Since then, 14 other communities have also written the same letter because they were inspired by Lethbridge. Anyway, what um, we're hoping that this will be an election issue, uh, green renewable energy, because Ontario and Nova Scotia now have a Green Energy Act. And I was on the um, Ontario uh, website the other day, and they're saying within three years there should be 50,000 new jobs created through green renewable energy. So my question to you is, do you have – what – what suggestion or what method do you think you would like to see that maybe we could utilize to mobilize the ordinary person to take action? 
I know that's a tough one. <laughs> Show the magic answer. Well, Thanks. I guess I'm living proof of it. <laughs> that you can mobilize the public for action. <laughs> because we did it in Edmonton Strathcona. <laughs> and I think it's completely uh, doable here as well. I, I, I totally, sincerely believe that. Um, I wish there was a magic answer. I mean, thank heavens for you and all the people who step up to the plate and do this voluntarily. Um, a lot of this work should be being done by our government agencies. And you're probably aware of uh, the Pembina Institute. Fantastic work on this, right? Which I cite from all the time. Um, they actually have done the analysis showing that within 20, 25 years, we can go with green power without switching to nuclear. So we can phase out of coal-fired power and, and provide clean, s secure power. So it is perfectly feasible. And they worked with Sierra Club, I think, and um, Alberta Federation of Labor and did an analysis of job creation between the fossil fuel industry and the new green energy. And it's actually, you know, what we need to do is get rid of these myths because, right, it's not environment versus economy. There are a lot of jobs to be created in the green economy. And a huge area is retrofitting. A lot of jobs. Like everything in my office, right above my office, is a, a light uh, infrastructure company that are, are changing over all the industrial facilities, commercial facilities. And I got them to change mine. And my whole constituency, actually my last newsletter, unfortunately we ran out of those, but I actually specifically talked about all of the various small enterprises right in my riding who were actually pragmatically creating jobs and, and work and income through the green economy. I guess you have to do is just keep talking to people and go to the forums and corner them and, and keep at them on that issue and frankly get people to vote based on the things that are important to us. It's a tough one, but essentially I got elected because of people power. You know, you can't compete protect perhaps money-wise. We can't afford big fancy uh, television ads and so forth but just simply by engaging people is, I think, the best way to do it. And we can, you know, you can sway governments. We can bring them around eventually, I think. We just, unfortunately, we need to do it sooner than later. Uh, hello. My name is Joseph Nittuck. Uh I uh, want to, first of all, commend you on your efforts in the, with the budget uh, debate this spring and uh, that you, you were part of the committee that that recommended to the Senate committee to uh, not to approve certain components of it. That's yeah. the uh, environmental uh, part of the legislation, which unfortunately didn't uh, survive beyond the Senate. Uh, I, we were following you very closely because I was on one of those folks behind the scenes that was doing some work sure. on that. But uh, my, my question is, and this is just maybe you have some inside information, maybe uh, you do, maybe you don't, maybe you have less than we do. Uh, the status of the uh, seven-year review of the Environmental Assessment Act, Federal Environmental Assessment Act. And also, just a supplement to that is, is anybody going to the Japan on the biodiversity uh, from the, from the uh, governments on, on the, the, the big conference in October? Excellent questions. And thank you for being so watchful and involved. You know, people make fun of me when I say that people watch CPAC. I love watching CPAC. <laughs> I especially like Catherine Clark's interviews with AMPs. You really find out a lot about them. And thank you for following the budget. Yes, um, you know, people say, oh, why don't you just run, f you know, for the Liberal Party and become a cabinet minister? Well, I think that every backbench MP, whatever party you're in, can actually have an effect. And I did table an amendment to the budget to 
to divide out the provisions majorly amending environmental assessment because they didn't belong in that bill. And sad to say, the Liberals didn't support our bill. Um, you know, that's the reality on the ground. When you look at the votes, that's really where you ha have to look. It's not just what you say in the House, but it's, it's your actions and how you vote. Although a lot number of the Liberals did vote and speak in support of, of my bill. And we did that in committee, and we did it in the House. We did it also for things like saving local post offices which they are also disassembling right across the country, particularly in northern areas. Um, it's, it's a struggle, and all we can do is, is keep at it and reveal. And, you know, the thing that was so exciting is our Climate Change Accountability Act, Bill 311, actually passed twice in the House. It's unheard of. It's the only time in history a private member's bill has passed twice in the House of Commons. And that was a bill initially introduced by Jack Layton in the last parliament. And again, essentially all that act does is say that we have to abide by what science is saying and every five years review what our reduction limits are going to be. And the government has to be accountable. They have to report to the House on what they're actually doing. And the Auditor General is behind that because she's saying this is not measurable and reportable. Like, we have no way of knowing whether any of the measures are, are working. So, yeah, there are specific things you can do. I also tabled the motion in the House in, in June uh, for a national review of um, environmental and safety impacts of unconventional oil and gas development. And that motion passed unanimously in the House. Now, has the government done anything? No. And so this is why we work together. I need the public speaking out and talking to their MP in Alberta. The rest of them are all conservatives saying, we need to have this review. And I just heard on that issue about Quebec. Now, who asked that you just asked that somebody asked that about Quebec, that they're announcing that they're going, going to go to shale gas. And I had a call today um, from a fellow that I talked to there a lot, extremely concerned. And I said, we're going to take that issue and we're going to raise it with the federal government. That's exactly why we need a national review. Is it safe to groundwater to be developing shale gas? Um, on your issue about who will represent Canada, will Canada be at the Big Biodiversity Convention meeting in Japan? As far as I'm aware, so far, neither Stephen Harper, even though the other world leaders are going, or Jim Prentice have said they will attend. And so I just sent an email um, <clears throat> back to uh, one of my staff in Ottawa saying, maybe my first question in the House should be to Jim Prentice. Um, since you're not going, can I go and represent Canada? <laughs> so write a letter to the Prime Minister and say, we want our nation represented at that table. We signed on to that convention. As I recall, uh, Brian Mulroney was the first country to sign on. Hi there. Uh, my name is Andy Davies. Uh, and a quote came to mind as you've been talking about the, putting a, the government under pressure. The Noam Chomsky quote, which is that it, to some degree it matters who's in office. It matters much more how much pressure they're under. Mm. You know, that it, the, the stripes just go with the public anyway. Um, it looks like we're facing, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, um, minority governments. Can you tell me and perhaps give a few examples, um, maybe applying to the, to the environment since that's a topic, as to why a person would vote NDP instead of Liberal, um, since there's always this discussion about dividing the left, that sort of thing. Um, so if you've got some examples where they might talk the same a similar talk, but walk a different walk, perhaps? Sure, and I don't want to pick on, 
you know, one opposition party or the other. I mean, essentially, I think people should also be pragmatic. If, uh, if it looks like the liberal is the best to oust the conservative here, support the liberal. I'd say that very frankly. But you also need to be voting based on <clears throat> not just what they say when they're campaigning, but what do they actually deliver when they're in, in office. And um, I often remind people that uh, people are very excited that we had the deputy prime minister, you know, in Edmonton Centre. But that deputy prime minister put the accelerated capital cost system in to accelerate the, the oil sands development. So it was also Paul Martin that put in place the accelerated process of reducing corporate taxes. And conservatives are just simply continuing uh, that policy. And that essentially is their economic policy. So that's where I would suggest that people really scrutinize carefully. Don't just look at what are they saying in the environmental platform, which can be quite flowery and people often say, say great things. Take a look at what, where they're going economically because, you know, we can only raise so much money in this, in this country by taxation and it's all about how do we spend it, where, where do we put our, our dollars. So if they've actually, well, uh, the best concrete example of that is is the famous 2005 NDP federal budget. Right? Were we in power then? No, we weren't. But what happened was Paul Martin was in a minority, and he wanted to do a further major corporate tax cut of 5 or $6 billion. And Jack Layton went to him and said, we're willing to keep your minority government in power if you are willing to shift 5, I can't remember the figure, 5 or $6 billion, and put that into extended care for seniors, put that into affordable housing, put that into public transit, put that into foreign aid, put that into reducing university tuition. And that passed. And that was why the liberal minority survived. And that's been continued our party's stance with Harper, is trying to dialogue with him and say, um, instead of providing yet another reduction in the corporate tax, that we're in a recession. We're in a terrible recession. And everybody is giving up something. Why are you continuing the reduction in corporate taxes? We already have lower corporate taxes in the United States of America. It's not a question of competitiveness. It's a question of ideology. But he refused to do it. So we could have delivered on a lot of these programs, including incenting renewable power, including more fast-tracking of, of public transit and affordable housing. But they adamantly refused to. So that's what I would, would look at. Increasingly, I'm learning about that. Is just don't look at the individual policies. Find out if they're actually willing to, to move on pension reform and, and so forth in the economic strategy. This will be our last question. Uh, Linda, <coughs> thanks so much for coming. Uh, my name is Tom Kane, and I wanted to ask, uh, with the Environmental Bill of Rights and Duties in Canada, would that cover, how would we get um, some comment from the, the Bill of Rights regarding the, uh, the new road that they're tar starting to talk about to bring large um, tar, oh, tar sands good. equipment from Montana all the way up to Fort McMurray, would the pollution from all those trucks bringing the big, huge equipment, would that blow over into Saskatchewan and be a federal responsibility, <laughs> or is it just an Alberta problem? Yeah. That's, that's, that's very interesting. And actually, you're raising an excellent point, because what you have to do is you have to be innovative and evaluate how can you go after these projects. Um, the first one, frankly, I would go after is the economic argument, before I would ever go after an environmental argument. And that is, 
Supposedly, we need to continue subsidizing with federal tax dollars and provincial this industry because it creates jobs, right, and revenue for the economy. And yet they're shutting down the steel industry in Edmonton to allow them to build this equipment in Korea and ship it across. Now, as I understood, initially Imperial Oil was offering the subsidy to Montana. Alberta was too foolish to even ask for it. So I think that maybe now they might be helping towards that. I mean, right? I mean, what did we do with our infrastructure dollars? Did we help Fort McMurray expand hospitals and schools? No. We're widening the highway so that all this equipment can get in and out of and workers to Fort McMurray. So sometimes if you want to go after the environmental, the long and short of it, I think it would be a stretch to try to do that. And the reason why I would say that is then you'd have to prove that and how are you going to get the data and so on and so forth. But I think... There's no doubt about it. It's cutting into jobs of people in Saskatchewan who, go, who might come in and, and be steel workers. It's certainly cutting out the work. If they want to ship in the equipment, why aren't they allowing the steel workers in eastern Canada or so forth? So that would tend to be more the tact I would take. But good for okay. you for following that issue. It's absolutely if you, ha- you have 30 seconds, there are a couple <laughs> of candidates for the municipal election that are here, and I commend them for coming to a maybe a federal type of thing. So mm-hmm. any comments on how the federal environmental policies link into a municipality and two weeks from today we've got the, a speaker from Medicine Hat talking about uh, here at SACPA on um, what Medicine Hat is doing from one small community similar size to Lethbridge so we hope that a lot of candidates will come and that those of us who come to SACPA will look around the room and see which candidates showed up for an environmental topic. <laughs> now Linda, Tom snuck in another yeah, question when he only it. had one. So it's your discretion whether you choose to answer that. I'll just, we should keep it brief. I will be very brief, and that is simply what our economic policy is at the federal level is very critical to municipalities. And uh, a lot, frankly, from our perspective, a whole lot more of that infrastructure money and so forth should be coming straight to municipalities and not being, you know, filtered through the provincial. And that's we just say, up the ante, give the municipalities a bigger piece of that gas tax, right? Bigger percentage. So let them decide what the priorities are. But absolutely, municipalities bear the brunt downloaded of environmental impacts. So, uh, yeah, let's see if they're willing to take on the feds. Well, thank you, Linda, for a great presentation. Very inspired, very lovely. Appreciate having you here.